Let's get into Romans. And um, I'm really, really, I woke up today and I'm really, really extra excited. Like I'm excited um, as Jared would have been if he would have made the church softball team. All right. He got cut. So you might want to hug him today. Uh, I'm really excited uh, because it's a couple reasons. Super Bowl Sunday, we're, we're pumped up about that. There's no chance the Titans are going to lose today. Um, and then I'm also, this is what really gets me amped is that we're back in Romans. Uh, this just gets me jazzed up. It's the, for the pastor, I want to let you know, all scripture's amazing, but Romans for a pastor is like Super Bowl. It's just this extra weight, this extra pressure that's put on you to carry because it's such a heavy and thick book. This book, this letter written by Paul has the ability to transform this church right here because it's done so in the past with churches all throughout history. Uh, the reading of this letter, the understanding of this letter to Rome, sparked the 16th century Reformation. Um, it gave birth to the Protestant church, and it will continue to do that today if we wrap our minds around it. So put your big brains on today because it's heavy, it's thick. Uh, we're going through chapter by chapter, verse by verse, because it is the most extensive explanation of the gospel and our own salvation in all of scripture. It's foundational. It's like this. It is the lenses that you put on to look at all of the other scriptures that you read from Genesis to Revelation. A proper view, a proper understanding of Romans, you will look upon every other verse in the Bible with a new set of eyes. It is important. It is weighty. It has been called the greatest letter ever written before. Uh, volume three, we are titling this Overwhelming Grace. The first two volumes, if you've not watched those or studied with us, jump online at our website, lifepointchurch.org forward slash creek. You can get caught up this week and go through the first seven chapters with us and kind of catch up, so to speak. So what we're doing we're going to camp out um, this letter Paul wrote um, to the church in Rome, probably wrote it from, uh, from Corinth in his third missionary journey uh, from Greece. So he probably wrote this letter. He wrote it to a church in Rome that is growing. It's thriving. Uh, it's a lot like LifePoint Church. Uh, a lot of new believers who are trying to understand the gospel, but not just understand it, but be able to live it out so it would penetrate our lives and our lives would look radically changed. So if this letter to the, uh, to, to the church in Rome, if this epistle has been called, and it's been rightly called this, the cathedral of the Christian faith is all of Romans, that this chapter 8 is its most sacred shrine. It is exhaustive. It is weighty. It is powerful. And we are going to dive into it today. Let me, I'm trying to explain to you how, how monumental this letter is. All scripture is profitable. All of it is for our good. But if you had 10 minutes to live, this is what you want to read. Chapter 8. This is it. Or have it read to you. It is essential to your salvation and knowing the gospel and its full implications. So that's what we're going to do today. That's the weight of this text. What we're going to zoom in on today, as we've already seen the text, is this idea that there is no condemnation. That's our bottom line. Very simple. Take it right out of Scripture. No condemnation. If we can really, truly, fully trust, believe that there is no condemnation for those that are in 
Christ Jesus, that our lives will be, our spiritual growth will skyrocket through the world. And we will be echoing throughout this country, this world, with the gospel. That's how powerful this text is in the Bible. So that's what we're doing this morning. I'm glad that you guys are here. There's a common theme through this uh, sermon today that I want you to hang your head on. Write it down if you want to, if you're a note taker. Uh, Spiritual growth is not about us behaving better. It's about us believing better. All right, I know that walking through this door today, that several of you, you wrestle with the assurance of your own salvation. Am I? Am I not? Have I done enough? Have I sinned too greatly? Is God going to punish me? I'm not really sure of my own salvation. I I kind of feel condemned. Sometimes I feel like I'm okay with God. Sometimes I do not. There is drastic implications to having that mindset in your mind. Paul wants to console us. He wants us to give us full assurance that in our own struggle with sin, that that does not cut the legs out of our assurance of salvation. So that's what we're going to dig into today. Let's pray before we get into this. Father, our Lord, our Savior, our God, Holy Spirit, we are about to open up something very heavy, very weighty. It is not to be blown past like another passage on Sunday, not to be another sermon, not to be another Sunday morning. Father, I've felt the weight of this passage on my shoulder all week. It is an awesome burden. I want to lay that before our people today. I want our people to know that this is weighty. This is a burden to be not taken lightly. Give us assurance Deliver us from the fear of condemnation with this text today that we may rightly live out the implications of our salvation in freedom and not fear. We love you. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, Romans 8, you're already there, 1 through 4. Let's get going here. So in before we get into this text... If you've already kind of been reading this week, there's a therefore in verse 1. And we always know that when we see the word therefore, we've got to go backwards uh, because there's been a truth that has been given to us in the previous passage. So therefore, now the implications of what we just heard. So going back to chapter 7, Paul was describing um, his battle with the sin. He gives his testimony in the life of a believer, and he says, why do I do the things I don't want to do? Why do I not do the things I ought to do? Oh, wretched man am I. He's describing the life of a follower of Christ, and he wraps up chapter 7 by saying, there is victory in Christ Jesus. That even though I may struggle with sin, there is victory. So he comes to us today, and we resonate with Paul, don't we? We know the struggle with sin in our life. It's still present. We are not freed from the presence of sin. We're freed from the penalty. And what it does to us is it starts to withdraw us back into fear and condemnation. Am I saved? Have I done enough? Is God happy? I hope I'm not condemned over and over again. And we lack assurance. We start to drift and wander away from the promises of God. And Paul says, listen, let me console you. Let me 
encourage you. Let me console you and tell you that the victory has already been achieved. And he says this in verse 1. So therefore, this is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I've underlined some heavy, heavy words. Condemnation. We need to know what this means. We've got to grab the understanding that if there is no condemnation for those in Christ, there was condemnation before that. The word condemnation is an English translation of the word in, in Greek. All right, In Latin, um, the word is damnationus, which means damnation. That's where we get the term damnation. And it simply means this. Legal declaration of guilt damned to hell for all of eternity. It's very simple. All right, it's, a, it's the God saying you are guilty and you are now on spiritual death row and you are awaiting spiritual execution. Condemnation is the opposite of justification. We're going to be using a lot of theological words as Romans does. Don't be scared of them. They're in the Bible. We need to understand what they mean. So condemnation is the opposite of justification. What was justification? It's God's legal declaration that even though we were guilty, we were pardoned by Jesus. And we are now righteous before God, now at the moment of conversion, and forever sealed. You will never be more righteous, and it will never be taken away from you because it is what God has declared on you. So it's instantaneous at your conversion, and it is eternal. You will never, ever lose that. So this idea, this no condemnation, is this, it's kind of like, why, why are we condemned? Why, do, why are we condemned? Where does that come from? Why all of a sudden am I eternally damned from the moment that I'm born on this earth? Well, Paul had spent chapters 1 through 3 explaining to us that because of one man's sin, Adam that has been inherited, we've inherited the sin nature in us, and therefore there is none righteous, no, not one, no one seeks for God, and we're all legally declared to be condemned and separated from God from our corrupt birth nature. Look at Romans 5.16. This is where it came from. The free gift is not like the result that one man sinned. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift of following many, or the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. Because of one man's sin, Adam. All of our earthly fathers came from Adam. Because of one man's, we've all been condemned. That is the default destination for all men, women. Condemnation. Doesn't seem quite fair, right? Well, the Bible says that we're not victims, we're glad participants in it. Like when we were born, we didn't come out like victims. Oh, I had this sin nature. God, why did you do this? We loved it. We soaked it up. We marinated in it. And we loved, we loved sin more than we loved God because it is in our nature. We inherited it from Adam. And what Paul is telling us is, how do we avoid this? That's the question if we're all guilty, condemnation is our destination. How does a sinful man 
inherit the kingdom of God? How does God, a just God, sinless, perfect, just God, allow a sinful, unjust, unrighteous man into heaven? Right? That's the question that Romans just exhaustively answers over and over. I want to go back to the text. Uh, let's, go, let's go Romans 5.16. This is just remembering again. It's a gift. You need to understand this. You avoid no condemnation. No condemnation is actually a gift to you that has been given by Jesus Christ so that you may have justification. Go back to verse 1. So here's what I want you to know about no condemnation. Before that, there's this word now. Now. What does that mean? Why is it now? There's two things I want you to understand about the word now. Now means now, not later. You get, you inherit this free gift right now and you got it before you expected to get it. It's kind of like an inheritance you get from a father who's still alive. He gives it to you now when you really weren't expecting it. No condemnation is a gift that God gives you of you now. You get it at the moment that you are converted, that you are justified by God. He says no condemnation. That is an incredible, incredible gift. Not a future version of you. Not a, a future cleaner, a photoshopped, airbrushed version of you. Down the road when you get your stuff together right then at your worst Rather, you're the brother who gave your life to Christ last week or you did it 20 years ago. The moment that you're justified, there is no condemnation for you ever, ever, and it is final. It's now and it's never again. So why do we still struggle? Why do we fall back into fear and unworthiness of this overwhelming grace that we're reading? It's because of sin. What does God do? What can God give us, believers, assurance of our salvation, who often find ourselves fighting but failing in sin? So here's the game that we play. We are in right standing with God. We feel pretty good. And we're not feeling condemned. And then all of a sudden we fall short of the glory of God. We fall back into that same temptation over again, and then we feel not, uh, we don't feel justified. We start feeling condemned and unworthy. So, what we do to respond to that is we do this I'm gonna pray harder. I'm gonna go to church more. I'm gonna give more this month. I'm really gonna white knuckle it. I'm gonna do better over and over again so then I can feel not condemned. And Paul is trying to let us know spiritual growth is not about behaving better. It's about believing better. That there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. You can't work your way out of that. All right? No condemnation doesn't mean that we don't sin. We're still in the presence of sin. What it means is there's not a penalty for our sin any longer. Paul had just described the struggle back and forth with a believer in chapter 7. But there no longer is a penalty for those things. This is the key, really, uh, why we get trapped into this idea of workspace, back and forth. I have to do this. I've got to do this. Over and over and over again to try to feel uncondemned. 
man, Martin Luther or Martin Lloyd Jones, who's a great 20th century preacher, said most of the people. Uh, this is the, where most Christians struggle, right here. This is the root of all problems. It's because they don't believe that there is no more condemnation for those that are in Christ. The ramifications and the result of not fully trusting in your salvation are this. It leads to this. This is a lie. You don't share the gospel. You fear sharing the gospel with people. You are not fully generous with your money, with your time, with your service, you want moderation, Jesus. You want to put him in a crate and tell him we can come out. You have a lukewarm affection for a relationship with Jesus. Because in the back of your mind, you believe that it is dependent upon you more than it is dependent upon God. And you lack assurance. And you need to write that in your mind and be delivered from that. The proper response when we do not feel condemned, and we know that there's no condemnation for those in Christ, is this, overwhelming grace. Are you kidding me? No matter what I do, no matter what I've done, no matter what I'm doing today, and no matter what I will do tomorrow, that there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. That is too good to be true. Are you kidding me? I can't mess this up overwhelming grace. That properly viewed is a greater devotion to Jesus. Not a casual relationship where you give him a Sunday. No way. You can't respond to that that way. It's impossible. A greater devotion, an adoration, being in awe of who God is. Now, if your mind hears that and and you jump over and you say, well, if it doesn't matter what I do, if it doesn't matter, I can't mess this up, There's no condemnation for me. I'm going to live like hell because I'm just going to do anything. I can't lose it. I'm just going to keep doing these things over and over again. I want to live how I want to live. If that is your response, then you don't know the gospel. The gospel never leads to licentiousness and a passivity with sin. It's hatred of sin. And this is where many people will really, really, really struggle. Are you kidding me? There's nothing I can do that's going to mess this up. You were never secured by your own hands to begin with. You were secured by the hands of God. And his hands are not weak. They're very strong. And you need to understand that it is the power of God for salvation and not the power of you and nothing that you did. The only thing you ever did, the only thing the Bible ever tells you that you did in your salvation was make a Savior necessary. That's all you ever did. You just busted it up, you messed it up, you offended God, you did nothing but make it necessary for you to need a Savior. Stripping man down to nothing. And only then will the humble be exalted by God. Don't think highly of ourselves. We sin as a Christian and it should do this now in us. It should not lead us back to guilt and shame. And fear and unworthiness. Our sin of a Christian should lead us to grief and repentance to God. Because a relational intimacy has been affected by my sin with God. It's like this. A a Christian sinning is like this. A, um, A man or a woman who engages 
in lustful fantasies with someone else that is not their spouse. That is not a legal matter. That is not a civil law. But it does wound deeply the heart of the spouse. It's a relational matter, and it cuts to the core. So Christians who sin do not repent to get legal pardon. They do it to get relational intimacy with God. We are in the presence of sin. We cannot ignore it. We will be in it for the rest of our life. It will be a battle of the flesh until we leave. But it does not need to cut out the assurance of our salvation. Some of you here today, even hearing this, well, it doesn't feel like I'm not condemned. I hear what you're saying. I read the text, but I just don't feel like I'm not condemned. I mean, I feel really bad sometimes, and I do stupid things. I don't really feel that Jesus Christ has fully justified me for the rest of my life. I don't feel that way. Hear this. It does not matter what you feel. Paul says you are. He says there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ. The question is, is do you believe that or do you trust your feelings? What you feel never determines what you believe ever. Your feelings and your emotions will lead you astray all the time. What you believe will determine what you feel and what you live out in your life. Nothing can separate you from the love of Christ Jesus. Look at Romans 8. This is the end of the chapter. We're not even in verse 2 yet. This is so good. For I'm sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. We just summarized everything in that text. Paul said, everything Nothing can separate you from the love of Christ once he has you. Nothing, no man, no creature, no created thing, nor angel, nor demon, no nothing can separate you from the love of God. And I want to explain to you why there is such security and that it is not in your hands. If you go back to uh, your salvation, followers of Jesus in the room, if you go back You will go back to the root. Knowing and understanding how you were saved will help deliver you from this fear of condemnation. Most of you in the room, like me, you believed uh, that when you gave your life to Jesus that you did this. I pursued him. I found Jesus, right? I I called upon him. I got up out of that chair at VBS. I got up, walked down that aisle at church on Sunday. I mustered up. I white-knuckled the courage, the faith to get up and say, save me. And because you think you initiated all of that, now you think that your salvation to continue and keep it and obtain it is up to you. Paul says, no, it never was. So here's what happens if you were saved by that thought process. That's okay. It was effective. But when you start to pick up your Bible 
and you start to study the God of the Bible and you start to be sanctified, made more like God, you read a Bible and you say, whoa, that wasn't me doing that. That was God stirring up an emotion in my gut, moving me, giving me the faith to stand up out of that chair to walk down and cry out for Jesus. He was pursuing me the whole time. I just didn't know it. You see, when you can start to understand that, you you cooperated with him. I want to let you know that. You did cooperate. You got up. But even God says that was an irresistible call. You were not going to be able to resist God for long. He was going to get you. The response to that is this. Go back to your salvation. It is the power of God, not the power of you. Because God has secured it. He has chosen. He has adopted. He reached down and grabbed you. Your salvation is in his hands and not in yours. If you trust your salvation to the feeble hands of men, we're all in trouble. Because I blew it a long time ago like you. I lost it probably the day after my salvation. But because God initiated, God pursued, God chose, God adopted, God did all of it, I know I'm secure. I don't have to fear it anymore. I don't fear condemnation because it is the power of God. And I'm in his hands. John 10 talks about uh, when we're in the hands of Jesus and the hands of the Father that no one snatches us out of his hands. Because he's the one who grabbed us to begin with. It's the root of all things. So this idea, this no condemnation, let's go back to verse 1 because we're still unpacking it. Here's the second part of verse 1 that's a key. Those that are in Christ Jesus. Only the ones that are in Christ Jesus, not the ones who are sinless, but only the ones that are in Christ Jesus. This term is repetitive and abundant throughout the New Testament. This idea of being in Christ is this idea of fusion, that there's a bond, that Christ is in you. He's inside of you, not with you. He's inside of you, and he dwells in Those that have a personal relationship where God has taken over and Jesus Christ is on the throne of their heart, there is no condemnation for those people. The text does not say for those that are in church. Those that are in a a Christian home. Those that are in a Christian family. Those are good things, but there is no security and no salvation in any of those things. They do not determine. And you must not trust in those things, but only in Christ. How do you know if you're in Christ? Your life should look drastically different. You should be able to look in the mirror today and say, I'm not like I used to be, follower of Jesus 20 years or two weeks You should always be able to look and see a different person every time you go to it. Has your life been transformed? Are you in Christ? I'm going to read a a quote from Charles Spurgeon about this idea. And he says this, If any man is not sure that he is in Christ, he ought not to be easy for one moment until he's sure. Dear friend, without the fullest confidence as to your saved condition... You may know you have no right to be at ease, and I pray you never be. This is a matter too important to be left 
undecided. I often talk to uh, parents, and they'll come to me, and we'll sit down in my office and meet them. They're struggling families, and they say, hey, man, I've got this child, either a young child or an older child that's moved away from the home, and they said, they seem to just have walked away from Jesus. Like they were doing good and everything looked okay, but then they walked away from Jesus. And I pray with them and we, we talk and encourage and we read scripture. And oftentimes what happens at the end of those conversations is this, this revelation that comes up where the parent ends up understanding that they have raised their kids in church, but not raised them in Christ. I raised them in church? I mean, what am I supposed to do? That's awesome. I'm supposed to raise them in church, right? It's a good thing. But if you're not raising your kids in Christ, you are missing the boat. One of the greatest tragedies that our parents make, we can as parents, I'm a parent too, is raising our kids with a little bit of Jesus. Moderation, Jesus. It is the most tragic thing you could ever do. Hey, I want them to have some good, good moral principles. I want them to behave good. Let me take them to church and let them teach them how to behave better. That is a travesty. It's like this. It's like an inoculation, which is when you, you're exposed to a little bit of something and then it makes you immune to the whole thing. Like a vaccination. You get a small dose of the virus and then it makes immune to the whole thing. A little bit of Jesus is going to make you immune to the whole person of Jesus. It will numb you to who he is, and it is detrimental to your families, to your souls. Raise your kids. Be in Christ, not in church. Do not make that mistake. Let's keep going in verse 2 through 3. For the law of spirit, this is how, this is because, there is no condemnation because of this. This is what happened, why there's no condemnation. For the love, the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. It just gets better and better. Now that there's not only no condemnation for those that are in Christ, we have been emancipated, we have been set free from the law of sin and death. So here's, let me take you back to the law because when you were outside of Christ, before Christ, you operated by the law of, uh, uh, by the law of sin and death. It operated you. The law was there. It said, do this, don't do this, and all these things, and you did not have the ability to conform to it. All it brought you is a spiritual death sentence. The law is like, uh, it's like this. It's the mirror that, that shows you the imperfections, but it can't fix the imperfections. It's the MRI scan that reveals a tumor, but it can't fix and cure the tumor. So from our birth nature, we're lawbreakers. It's just in us from our, from our very first breath, right? Have you been down to the preschool and kids' hallway? Lawbreakers, a lot of them, right? Not your kids, they're perfect. Not talking about them. But it's in our nature. That's what we do. And the law, because we cannot conform to it, it only does this. It only brings a spiritual death sentence. Because the Bible says if we are guilty of one, we're guilty of the whole law. Which we all know, we all fall short of the glory of God. So we're all condemned. It cannot deliver us. Does that mean the law is bad? 
Absolutely not. Paul just told us in chapter 7 that the law is good. By no means is the law bad. It reveals the character and the heart of God. It just can't justify you. It just can't make you right with God. The law is supposed to make you like God, but not right with God. It is desired to sanctify us, not justify us. So it is a good thing. It just can't measure up. So what the law could not do for us, the spirit of life, Jesus Christ, the same spirit that rose Jesus from the dead has now freed us from that bondage of having to perform better, to act better, to behave better as a means of our salvation. So what can Right? Let's go into verse 3. What and who can fulfill this law? For God has done, always want to underline, always as a remembrance, it is what God has done. You will not find a text, what man has done. Listen what this guy did. No, all we ever did was mess it up. It's what God has done. What the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. The law could never justify us. God did it. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. So God not only, not only said you're not condemned ever, there was a price he had to pay for that no condemnation. That gift he gave you was his own son. So instead of condemning you, he turned and says, I'm going to condemn my son instead. He poured it all out on him instead of you. If you are here today and you believe that God loves you, it has to be rooted right there. If you don't believe this and if you don't trust it and you don't live it, you will never experience the love of God. You will only experience his judgment. His love is rooted in this gospel right here. It's the basis of who he is. We cannot separate God's judgment and wrath from his love. Here's his love. Here's the invitation to love. He sent Jesus Christ in the likeness of sinful flesh, which just simply means externally, outwardly, Jesus looked like man, sinful man on the outside, but inwardly he was God and he was sinless. And he condemned Sin in his son Jesus in the flesh. He poured it all out on him. Let's close out this passage. 8.4. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. You see, the law demands righteousness. The law demands perfection. So if you look at the law, you have to be perfect to inherit the kingdom of God. Only perfect people go to heaven. You couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. It is what Jesus did. He fulfilled the righteous requirement of the law. And in his perfection, he trades you. He says, give me your imperfection. Give me all that mess. And I'm going to exchange and give you my perfection. I'm going to fulfill the righteous requirement of the law for you. And he did not only fulfill it for us, he fulfilled it in us. Why is this important? 
Because he didn't just say, okay, I've saved you from condemnation. He did it so he could imprint the law of God on our own hearts so that the law and the holiness would be fulfilled in us, which is the Spirit. So God did not just do it to justify us. He did it to sanctify us, to make him more like himself. He says, you can't even do that on your own. You can't grow in godliness. You can't grow in holiness without me. So I'm going to give you a portion of the Godhead Trinity, the Holy Spirit, and I'm going to put it in your heart. And it is going to guide and control and, and, and take over residence and management of your entire life. Because you can't even do that apart from me. If you think you can do it apart from me, then you're going to fall back into works and thinking that you are going to obtain and keep your own salvation. It's all the work of God and the Holy Spirit that dwells within us. Man, you see why this is the greatest chapter in all of the Bible. It, just, it takes us back to the root of our own salvation. It challenges our mind because our minds say this. People left first service and they're like, I can't believe it. I mean, how can God's grace be that way? I just don't believe that. And that's the problem is that you don't believe. Not what you feel, it's what you believe. If you believe it, your life will be radically changed. I'm going to close out with a story. There's this uh, baseball story. Uh, there's this guy, he's a catcher in the, uh, in the, the uh, uh, AAA ball. He's like minor leagues. He's not a good hitter at all. He's a good catcher, but not a good hitter. So he gets up to bat, and he... Um, and he doesn't hit hardly at all. Like he's never made it past first base. Never. Like he's just a bad hitter. So he gets up to the plate and he jacks one and he just sends it straight out to center. It's on a missile. All right. Well, he runs down first base. He rounds first, gets around first, and he's getting ready to head to second, which he's never done before. And he buckles in fear, falls to the ground, and crawls back on his knees to first base. And he's clinging to first base. He's like holding on to it like a, a child in a teddy bear. And, and everyone's laughing at this guy. They're laughing. His teammates are laughing. His coaches are laughing. The fans are laughing at him. And his first base coach comes over. And he's getting ready to let him know why they're laughing. He pulls him up. He says, hey, man, the ball went 60 feet over center field fence. It ain't coming back. What are you doing clinging to first base? Right? So he gets up and he realizes that he's victorious. He's hit it out of the park. It's over. It can't come back. They can't take it away. So he gets up in confidence, triumphantly runs around the bases, trotting. There's a new confidence in a moment that he realizes it's gone. And that is what Paul's teaching us in Romans 8, 1 through 4. That Jesus Christ has already hit the home run. It's gone. You do not need to cling to first base any longer. The account has been settled. He has given you the righteousness. You are victorious in him. It's never coming back. You raise up and you run the race with confidence with assurance that it's never going to come back. You never have to fear condemnation ever, ever again. If you're a follower of Jesus and you read this passage, it cannot have a moderate effect on you. You can't sit on that 
and go back to work Monday. Oh, that was good. It is life changing when you understand that. If I've miscommunicated it in any way today, by my imperfect words, go back and read the text. The power is in the text, not in the sermon. Go back and read it. Please, I implore you to do that. It has the implications and the ability to literally rock this church and grow. And our our church will echo throughout Smyrna in an incredible, incredible way. I know we say that all the time, but the power is right here. For those that are not in Christ, you've never put your life in Christ. Here's what I want you to know. Have you allowed the world to shape you and mold you to where the point of you do not fear condemnation anymore? Has the American dream blinded you where you don't think about it? Have you confused being in church with being in Christ? All tragic and eternal mistakes don't make the mistakes. Are you in Christ or are you outside of Christ? And if that causes question in you, here's what I want you to know. You cannot get in Christ. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians that God puts us in Christ. So if your question is, how do I get in Christ? That's, you're primed and ready for the gospel. And the gospel says, God, I can't get in Christ. I can't do it on my own. I can't jump high enough. I can't work hard enough. There's nothing that I can do to jump into the arms of Christ. That's the cry of salvation. And then God takes you and he pulls you in Christ and he secures you forever. If you're outside of Christ, there's room. There's always room at the table for those that want to be in Christ. Today, would you consider doing that if you're wrestling with anything that we've said? The guys are going to come out and we're going to pray and let this text kind of penetrate our hearts and respond to it however God so appropriately does that. Father, this is not to be taken lightly. There are people in the room right now that are, their minds are stirring, their hearts are stirring, they're struggling with believing something that they've never believed before. Father, I pray, I pray they only just run to the text and read it and let you do that work of belief in them. Help them to trust that there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. Help us to walk in a boldness where our assurance will never be cut out from us ever, ever again. And that is overwhelming grace. Thank you for your overwhelming grace, God. We pray this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.